John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be tonight. Susan, thank you for your words with that. And, um, you know, it's always amazing how God does, orchestrates things when we're, you know, we'll read the same text. And I hope that you take, take the time and the opportunity to do this during the week, too. One of the great things about studying a book like this, when we go verse by verse through a book, is you kind of know where we're at from week to week. And, you know, kind of even if we don't get all the way through a chapter, which happens sometimes or whatever, you kind of know the area. And when we have been in a book as long as we have, we started this one first of January, I believe. Yeah, we started the first week of January in John. And so here we are in August still in it. So maybe has given you an opportunity to read over it multiple times. Um, you know, Paul talks about uh, mowing and doing things out, or he just listen to it over and over. Um, the word gets, like, it becomes knit in your heart when you do that. But even with that, um, you and I might have read the same text this week, and the way the Spirit uh, drives that home to your heart may be completely different than what he talked to me about this week. And so um, I'm going to share some thoughts with you out of John chapter 18, but I always love hearing Susan sharing the, uh, with our kids and, and what God's done with the text for her and then listening to Paul teach. And um, I'm going to talk briefly about that particular thing when you go back into John chapter 13 when, um, when, Peter, when Jesus tells Peter what actually happens here in John 18, that uh, very quick turnaround of a prophecy where Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, and then it happened in that moment of, of what happened in, in uh, Peter's heart uh, at that time. So we're going to be in John chapter 18. It's a, it's a big text because I wanted to try to get through this, but in reality, um, even where we finish, if we get all the way through 18, the section um, is longer than that. It really goes in the, the whole thing. You know, we talked before about how the chapters, verses, those are not inspired, but where they broke the cut from 18 to 19 is really, it's all going to come together. So Paul's going to pick back up with it next week and we'll continue. So we'll see how far we get. All that to say, <laughs> I'm going to go and then you pick it up. You pick it up and run with it next week. Okay. I, I usually like to, um, to go through and read the entire text first and then come back, but because of the length of it, we're just going to dive right into it uh, from the beginning. So in John chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words had he spoken? You remember where we were last week? He just, uh, it's kind of what they call the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus praying. First, he, he kind of prays for himself and what's, what's about to happen, but also uh, he prays for us. He prays for his disciples. So um, when he finished, um, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. It's the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Now, um, here it just says there was a garden. What we know from the harmony of the Gospels, and you look and it talks specifically, gives it a name in Matthew and Mark, and we know it to be Gethsemane. So the word Gethsemane is translated into oil press. Okay, so we don't we don't see that detail. John doesn't give us that detail here, but because the context of the scripture as a whole, we know it to be Gethsemane or the oil press. And um, in the, also in the other gospels, we see how Jesus in this time, this is, this is that moment where Jesus is having that, that almost that like wrestling match between 
the flesh, the humanity that he's wrapped in, in his connection with, with glory, in his connection with perfection, in his connection with, with eternity. And, and we see that moment of, of humanity of, if this, if this cup could pass from me, if there's, if there's any other way, Lord, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. We see that moment. Um, and the name, the oil press, the garden of the oil press where he is, is also where we, we see in the other gospels that um, Jesus was under such... Um, physical turmoil in that moment that he actually sweats drops of blood. There's a, a, a actual physiological thing that happens where the capillaries burst and blood will flow through sweat glands in there. So the name Gethsemane, the oil press, that's, that's what, what you see in, in our Christ wrestling with his humanity in that moment and feeling the press of what the weight of what he's actually about to do, what's about to happen. So we don't have all those details in John, but we know from the other context that that's, that's where we are. That's what's happening here. Um, which he and his disciples enter. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this was not the first time he had been to this place. This was a place when he was in the area that he liked to go to to be, uh, he'd take the disciples there. And then a lot of times he would go off by himself, and he would pray. He would spend hours in prayer. This is also in the, in the context of this is also where we see in other gospels where he brought his disciples to a point and he said, I need you to watch and pray with me. And he would go to pray and then they, what? What was happening? Do you remember? They, they were falling asleep. That's important. We don't see that detail here, but that's important uh, as we see the other part. Do you know why they were falling asleep? And this was happening? It's in the, this was in the middle of the night. We're going to get into the details of what's happening here, but that's a really, really important detail to um, everything that's happening, uh, everything that's happening here. So, uh, so Judas, having procured a, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with ladder, uh, lanterns, torches, and weapons. So again, the reason they would, they would need the lanterns is because it's dark. It's, it's nighttime. Um, why did they go at night? Why were they going to, does anybody know why they went to arrest him at night? Or, any thoughts, ma'am? They were not supposed to do that, so why did they do it? And, and that, that is an important detail that they came at night. They had the lantern, so we know it was dark. In the other context, we know the disciples were falling asleep, things like that. They went at night which was illegal, by the way, like Jody said. So why at night? Why did they go at night? They, they, didn't, they didn't want this to be front page news, right? Because of the following that he had. If you remember, so he's going to go um, and he's going to be presented to Annas. He's going to be presented to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one a few chapters ago that said, it's better that one man die than many. Right, because they knew that he had this gigantic following. Now there are all these people coming um, to be with him. So, uh, 
So now Judas has these soldiers that he, that he was able to get from uh, the officers and the chief priests sent people with him. There were Pharisees that were there. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? Um, it's important for us and our humanity to remember that Jesus was never caught off guard, right? This, this moment, this time in the garden, when all of a sudden he's besieged by an angry mob with swords and, and lanterns, and they're bringing fire, like I can see a visual of it in my head, just people running in and they're, they're coming and that didn't catch him off guard. He, he knew that that moment was coming. He, he had been preparing for this moment. Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Paul talked about this a little bit, maybe last week or the week before. The response of him saying, I am he. I think the last time I preached and we were in chapter 14 or 15, somewhere around in there, I talked to you about the seven I am statements that he makes in the book of John. There are these seven different times where he says things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the vine. It was 15 is when we were talking about that. So these seven I am statements. Um, this eighth I am statement may be the most powerful statement in the book of John. He didn't just say, this is not just Jesus saying, I'm over here. He invoked the name of Yahovah. He breathed the breath of God out when he said, I am. That, that the yod, hey, vav, hey. And, and you know that that's what happened because of the response of the people that came. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And, and the response is, They felt they they drew back and fell to the ground at the mention of his name. Now, what he didn't say, he didn't say I'm I'm Jesus. He didn't say I'm Yeshua. He said I am. And I like the response of the crowd after this, because it says in verse. In verse 6, when Jesus said to, them, said to them, I am, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked again, whom do you seek? And like, this is where you have to put yourself into the story. But so if, if he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he spoke and they fell down like they were dead people. And then he said it again, who are you looking for? Do you realize, like here it says that they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you realize that they had to pick themselves up off the ground to respond to his question the second time? 
to me, as I was reading that, and again, like you just, okay, so they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Jesus said to him, when he said to them, I am, and they drew back, or they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. When they said that, if you just read it through, you're just, just mindlessly reading scripture. But as I read that this week, what it brought to mind is how dark and evil the heart of man can become. It made the point that John made the point in his writing here when he said that the crowd came and he asked them. It also says Judas was right there with them. Judas being who, who betrayed him, being with them. My guess is that when he said, I am he, Judas fell to the ground also. You think about all the things that Judas saw with his own eyes and how dark the heart of man can become. That when he invoked his name, he, he spoke the name of the one that created all of them, the one that at the word of his mouth, the breath of his mouth holds the fibers of their life together. That they had to pick themselves up off the ground because he said his name. And he asked the question again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They just answered again. How dark can the heart of man become? That you can experience something like that, like something like that can happen to you? But man, we got a mission, we got a job to do. I got my marching orders. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I have my path, I have my, you know, I, I'm an official. I'm, I'm an official with the, the military. I'm, you know, I, I was sent here by the chief priest to come and execute these marching orders. So I will pick myself up off the ground and still press forward with this thing that's about to happen. I'm telling you, religion, because this is what you have to remember. These are people who thought they were doing what the Torah told them to do. Do you remember that? You want to talk about how dark the heart of man is? And, and what I kept thinking about as I was reading this is, this is what religion does. They thought that they were doing what Torah told them to do. Remember, if, if anyone comes and makes these claims... That, that's what they thought they were doing. Religion. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. He said his name again. So if you're seeking me, let them go. This is important. Okay. As Jody mentioned, what they were doing was illegal by coming at night. 
they were coming to, a, to arrest a man also without bringing any charges. Also illegal. The other thing that would have happened in, in this time, in the culture that we're talking about right here, first century, if he was being accused of something, he was being arrested, they would have had to arrest all of the disciples also because they were accomplices to whatever it was that he had done. And Judas. Judas would have had to have been arrested also. He would have been an accomplice. So what Jesus says here is, I am he. I'm the one you're looking for, so let them go. And, and thus, it says here that he was fulfilling what he had said, that um, those whom you've given me, I didn't lose any of them. And so it was fulfilling that. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. You have to remember, and I think we've talked about this, but Peter was a tradesman and not a warrior. He was never, he was never trained in the art of swordsmanship. The, the truth is, and you think about what, what Susan said about Peter, the truth is Peter was probably trying to cut the dude's head off, but he wasn't very good with the sword, right? He, I mean, he hadn't done it. He did, do you know that this, the disciples had two swords? <laughs> the scriptures actually tell us. There's this whole thing, Jesus goes into this teaching about, you know, you take this and you give it off for this, and at the end of it, they go, Jesus, we've got two of them. Okay, we're fine. We should be good. So somebody else had a sword too. I don't know how they made the decision to give one of them to Pete. Pete probably took it. If we know Pete well enough, he he probably just took it. Guys, let me hold that. Let me hold the sword. We're going to be fine. What we also know about this text from the harmony of the Gospels is that at that moment when Malchus's ear was cut off, that Jesus picked it up and put it back on. One of the craziest stories in Scripture that, like there's that, and I also think about the time with the guy with the withered hand when Jesus told him to reach it out. Like I always think about, like, what did that look like? How crazy would that have been? But yeah, so he picks up, so... At this point in the story, Jesus has said his name, knocked everybody down. They got up and still pursued. Peter has now chopped a dude's ear off. Jesus picked it up and put it back on, and they still move forward with what they came to do. Religion. That's that's what religion will do. All right, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captains and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We talked about that. This was in chapter John 12 or 13, somewhere around in there, um, that Caiaphas made that statement. Now, why they... 
made the decision at this point to take Jesus to Annas first, um, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And, and basically what that meant is that Annas was probably the high priest at one time, and then he kind of retired away from it, and then Caiaphas became the high priest. So I'm not sure, because Caiaphas is the one that told them, it's going to be best to kill that dude, because if you kill that dude, then maybe we don't have to kill all these other people. He was the one that did that. So why they brought him to Annas first, I, I don't know. I read stuff this week, and nobody really seemed to have um, a, a real good handle on, on that. But um, So they bring him to Annas. Um, and then, so verse 15, Simon Peter, this is where um, Susan shared, um, he followed, and so did another disciple that came in. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard. So you think about the scene. Peter's there and another disciple. Uh, it's thought that this is either James or John is, is what the thinking here is. But what it says is that one was known to be a disciple of Jesus. So they allowed him to enter into the courtyard. That's a pretty significant, pretty, pretty important detail in this story that that one was allowed to enter in, but Peter was not, he was not brought in. And that gets into this whole discourse about him being questioned, were you, weren't you one of the people that was with him? Weren't you, weren't you there? Um, but the other one was brought in. Now, the significance of the other one being brought into the courtyard is he would have been brought in as a witness against the one being charged. But at this point, there have been no charges. So that gets back into that thing like, so why did they arrest him? Why did they bound him? Why are they taking him into the courtyard? And why are they bringing a witness in? And that question about bringing the witness in becomes even more perplexing in that they never actually ask for a witness to testify for or against the things that were being claimed about Jesus. At no point did they do that. So Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciples, the other disciple who was known to be uh, known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "You also were not one of his disciples, are you?" And he said, "I am not." Now the servants and the officer had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You have to remember we're um, nearing the time of Passover. Um, in the area at that time, the days would have been warm, but the nights probably would have still been pretty cool during that, that early springtime for them. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. This is another point that, would, that was breaking protocol. In a situation, first century Roman government, you have to keep that mindset. At this time, the high priest would have never interrogated the one being charged. The high priest would have interrogated witnesses that were brought in to testify against or for. So the one disciple was brought in with him but was never questioned. 
the high priest starts making accusations to the one who's been brought in being charged, although he hasn't been charged yet. They broke protocol on so many points, and even the fact that this is happening in the middle of the night. It was said to be somewhere at this time, it's somewhere between three and six o'clock in the morning is, is what they guessed the time frame to be for this, uh, this illegal trial that's taken place. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus knows the law, right? Why are you asking me what I said? I've said everything I said in public. I've never tried to keep a secret because Jesus was singularly focused, right? While he was here wrapped in humanity, he had one focus, one, one goal. He knew what he was put here to do and that's all that he did. So at no point was there any secret to the message that he was preaching. So he said, why are you asking me? Ask any of these other people what's been said. 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Whoa. That was one of those things that as I was reading, I'm like, man. Of course, we know what's to come. We know the flogging, the beating, and the like what actually happens. But in this moment, the king of kings standing there in front of the high priest who is breathing because he's allowing him to breathe. And the dude strikes him and says, how dare you speak to the high priest like that? Like the level of restraint that that took to be the almighty one and and to take that Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, he's saying, there's witnesses, there's people here. Ask them, talk to them. See if what I've said is actually what's happened. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So that was the scene that happened with Annas. The father-in-law, the yeah, the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was probably high priest before Caiaphas became high priest. So then he sends him bound onto Caiaphas. Twenty-five. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, "You are also not one of his disciples, are you?" And he denied it and said, "I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear had been cut off." Did I not see you in the garden with him? This is the relative of Malchus who had his ear cut off. He's going, wait a minute. Weren't you there in the garden with him? Peter knows that he chopped the dude's ear off. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Susan talked about um, John 13 when um, Jesus had said, you know, Judas is, and he didn't name the name, but Judas got up and left. And we know that 
he's going to betray him. He's going to, he denied Jesus, he's going to betray him. And this, it's going to start this whole thing that's about to happen. And Jesus, as they're reclining at the table, he says something to the effect of, look, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't go with me. And, and Peter, you know, he's always one like, well, I, I want to go with you. Why can't I go with you? And he says, where I'm going, you, look, you can't go. And he goes, I would die with you. I'll, I'll go anywhere and I'll, I'll, I'll lay down my life. And you know what Jesus said to him right after Peter said, I'll lay down my life? Do you know what he said to him? <laughs> Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. So this moment in Peter's life, I can't, I can't imagine the weight of that, of, of dealing with like the, that Jesus spoke prophetically into his life and then to be in that moment. But I love the point that Susan made about that. He didn't turn, he knew that this was gonna happen. He, he prophesied it, but he didn't run Peter off at the table when they were having the meal. There's so much grace. I mean, just the level of love. And, and it's because, he, I mean, Jesus knows Peter's heart. And to Susan's point, like, we're, we're going to screw up. We're, we're gonna do things that are just, that you know, just break the heart of God, but he doesn't cast us away because he knows our hearts belong to him. He doesn't blow us up just because we repeatedly, time and time and time and time again, we choose the created thing over the creator. But he doesn't cast us off. He doesn't send us away from the table. What a loving savior we have. So you just think about that moment for Peter. Okay, get into 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor. Look at this. Oh, this. Okay. The people who have gone on behalf of the high priest to arrest Jesus, to bring him in, and to have him killed. They're on their way to Pilate now, who is the governor of the region. And they're taking him there, and it says they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they wouldn't defile themselves, but could eat the Passover. Religion, right? Bammer, will you show that, that image that I gave you earlier. Have any of you seen this before? Okay, Jacob, you've seen this. I've shown this to you before. Matt, you've been to Honduras? Okay, has anybody else been to Honduras before in here? This is in Honduras. This is the Choloteca River in Honduras. This right here, I don't know how well you can see it that's pixelated and blown up. This right here is a bridge, okay? So in the 90s, the Japanese government gave a gift to the Honduran government, and the gift was a bridge to go over the Choloteca River. This was a major, uh, major area that went through 
that went through a, a major section in Honduras, and they engineered this to be state, a state-of-the-art bridge. And, and Honduras is not a wealthy country. It's, it's, it's relatively poor. And so they gave, them, they gave them a gift. They used, it, it was state-of-the-art. The way they designed it, the materials they used, they brought them all in, and they built a beautiful bridge for them. In 1998, Hurricane, Hurricane Mitch ravaged Honduras, like just absolute devastation, flooding everywhere. And when Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras, it washed out the roads on both sides of the bridge and the river jumped the shore and cut a new path to get through. The river itself rerouted because of the amount of flooding that came into the area, it jumped the bank and moved over and kept flowing. So this is called the bridge to nowhere. Multi-million dollar, state-of-the-art, the highest technical um, engineering that went into and the best materials that Japan could find for this gift that goes nowhere. And this is a picture of religion. So for centuries, there has been time and effort and resources dumped into creating a facade. It can look great. It can be, you can use the best that you can find to make it. But if it doesn't get you to where you need to go, it's worthless. These, these men are condemning an innocent man to death. But they're not going to step foot into the governor's palace because they would defile themselves and not be able to take the Passover. The governor was a Gentile, so we'll just use kind of a generic term. But it was common knowledge, or it was, I don't know that, I don't know that you can say common knowledge. Maybe more of a, what we would consider to be an urban legend type thing, but it was things that people assumed that were happening. They assumed the mindset was the assumption that Gentiles were doing such awful things inside of their homes because they, they didn't keep Torah, that they were doing such awful things inside their homes that they probably shouldn't even go into them. And one of the things that I read that, that was part of the um, kind of, I don't know if folklore, maybe a, a better term for it, but one of the assumptions that they made is that they... they aborted so many children that they flushed down the plumbing in their homes that that's why they would defile themselves because it was death inside the house. Like that was, that was kind of the mindset that would cause these people to not even want to step foot into the governor's palace. 
they would defile themselves and not be able to take the Passover. It's, that mindset is no different than this right here. And so it looks great. We, we put the best of the best into creating it. But it gets you nowhere. It's not going to get you over to the other side. And it's our responsibility as his followers to take the gospel into places where we build those bridges. The gospel is the bridge. If in this analogy, if that's what religion looks like, the gospel is our ability to like chop down a tree and lay it across and get across that way and bring people with us. And we have to chop down another tree to lay it out there to make it go out further and bring people with us and bring hope along the way to, to free people from the bondage that comes from religion. This was religion. Caiaphas, when he made the statement that it's better for one man to die than many, was making a statement as the high priest to a religious group of people who heard it and said, yeah, you're probably right. It's probably best for one to die instead of a bunch of people to die. Because what would happen if, if you start having a movement of people who are following after someone that they saw to be their Messiah, they saw to be their savior, the high priest then will lose his, listen to me, his political power. He'll lose his political power because now the people are not, they don't need what he has to offer. If he loses his political power, then Pilate sees this unrest that's happening inside of the area that he governs. So what's he gonna do? He's gonna trigger the alarm and, and his forces, the Roman force that was at his back comes in and just, we're taking the temple down, Forget it. We're, we're not doing this at all. And the death and, the, and, and destruction that would come as a fallout, that's the game that Caiaphas is playing out in his head. It's better to kill this guy than for me to lose all my political power, but also for us to lose all the, the semblance of religiousness that we have built up here. That Jesus said, it's nothing but whitewashed tombs. That's what this is. It's a whitewashed tomb. Looks great on the outside, but it's death and destruction. There are no roads leading to this bridge. You see that? You can't even access it. It's a whitewashed tomb. But Caiaphas wanted to hold on to that political power he had. What happened when you're in this position, it means that regardless of what happens with um, you know, when, when there would be times where it wouldn't rain en enough and now you've got a drought on your hands and when droughts come, water gets sparse and now there's not as much crop coming in. High priests never felt that. They, they, were, in, they were in next to the palace. They were, they were up on the hill. 
they didn't know about any of that stuff. So like, it wasn't just about, you know, my place and my position here as God's high priest for these people. But man, I serve Rome. Caiaphas was a servant to Rome, not God Almighty. And he didn't want to lose that. So Caiaphas sends him on to Pilate. The people who were with him, they didn't want to go into his headquarters because it would defile him. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? They said to him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They didn't even say anything. There still is no accusation as to why he was arrested. And we know here they're called Miranda rights, right? Like, you read your Miranda rights. I've been told. I don't know. I've never been read my Miranda just to be clear. <laughs> but, like, there's a way of doing things. He still has not been accused of any crime. He's been bound. He's now standing in front of the third official of the, of the morning, the early, early morning. So Pilate says, what's he being accused of? Their response is, if he didn't do anything evil, do you really think we would have brought him to you? That's not an answer. What are we talking about? Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. So he's saying, it's your, you brought him in, you've got your Torah, judge him according to your Torah, based off of what he did. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There it is. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Because why? He hadn't done anything. When, what they said is actually not true right? They said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We spent enough time in the Torah last year. There are laws that, that would allow them to put someone to death, right? I mean, name them, idolatry. You, 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 could, you would be put to death. You'd have been taken out to the city gates and stoned for idolatry. Yes. So what they said was not even true. The problem is their law would not allow them to put him to death because there still was no accusation. This was to fill the, this is important here, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is why that's important. The whole thing, it's all scripted. Jesus knew all of this was gonna happen. If he had just simply been turned back over to the Jewish leaders for them to put him to death, he would have never been placed on a tree. You realize that? There was no standard. There, there had never been anything set in place in Jewish history where that was a practice that they did. It was considered such a curse that you didn't even do it to people who needed to die. 
because it was a Roman form of death. You're gonna kill somebody, you threw rocks at them. So what it said here is, this was to fulfill the word. When, when he said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, when, when the Jewish leaders said that, that was the fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 53. Because they didn't have a standard for it. They don't put people on trees. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so Pilate had come outside to meet with the hostile crowd, crowd with the fire sticks and angry people because they couldn't come in because they'd defile themselves. So he went out and talked to him. Then he went back inside and he brought Jesus in with him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus is deploying that strategy where you answer every question with a question. <laughs> you ever been around somebody that does that? Well, what do you think? It's a good question. What do you think about that? So Jesus is just answering with the question. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I love that. That's, that's the, that's it. That's the thing that I held on to all week in this text. This everything that's happened. And then it comes right down again, the third official that he's seen in these early hours of the morning. And he says, you're, it's your people that want you dead. And Jesus goes, listen, my kingdom's not of this world. Do you know what he's saying when he responds to that question with my kingdom is not of this world? You know what he's saying? Those are not my people. You remember like the, the whole thing about not everyone who is a Jew is a Jew? Those are, those are not my, that, my kingdom is not of this world. He was so singularly focused, like so driven. Everything that he did, the entire time he walked on earth, wrapped in flesh, wrapped in humanity, was focused on one thing. It was, it was the kingdom of God. He was never distracted away from the kingdom of God. And even in this moment where he knows that this is the, this is the man that has the ability to sentence, sentence him to death, that he knows is coming. Even in that moment, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would, ha would, be, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And that's what this boils down to. What is truth? What do we know to be truth? The word of God is truth. And what, he, what Jesus is saying here is, this is the purpose. This is why I was brought into the world. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate can't hear it. What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Again, we know from context in other gospels of this account that Pilate actually went out before the people and like as a visual picture and and ceremonially he brought water out and he actually poured water over his hands and he said that his blood's not going to be on my hands like cleaning his own hands of this situation a man that didn't even know truth, but saw this and go, I don't see any guilt here. I see if I know fault. And ultimately, this was the highest authority figure in the area where they were. 